Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. So, uh, last week, uh, we talked about the what's known as the distant epoch. This is the story of Gautama Buddha, and it's one of those, uh, it's in the collection of the Jatikas. And uh, <clears throat> we talked about... Um, what he was doing before he was born as a bodhisattva. And uh, <clears throat> I was going to go on to, uh, you know, the process of his life and what he did during his life, but then it occurred to me that this was a good time to look at the parami because herein our bodhisattva spent four asankhaya, measureless times, and 100,000 eons making his resolutions under 24 Buddhas, commencing with Dipankara. No, no Buddha other than this perfectly enlightened one appeared after the Blessed One, Kasapa. And in this manner, the Buddha received his assurance under the 24 Buddhas, <clears throat> beginning with Dipankara. So, you know, what was he doing during that hell of a long time? I mean, my goodness, what was he, <laughs> what was he playing at? <laughs> that took him so long. So it was uh, the development of these parami, and uh, they're various. They usually described as perfections, which is a little bit over the top, really. It's more virtues or those um, those qualities that you need to get to the other shore, because that's what parami means, the other shore. <clears throat> but he needs a little bit more than that, and I just want to read this just out of interest to you. He actually needs, <clears throat> for it is said the resolution which consists of a combination of eight conditions. So you can't just become a Buddha because you've got the perfections right. Birth as a human being, the advantage of sex, we'll come to that in a minute, no throwing stones yet, please. The good fortune, the meeting with a teacher, hmm? meeting with a teacher, ordination, endowment of inherent capabilities to higher knowledge, the dedication of one's life, and resolute will. <clears throat> so there's one or two things there. The, uh, the idea that you have to be a human being to be a Buddha. You can't do it in the other realms. So I think we know why. You know, the hell realms are too painful, and the heavenly realms are just too joyful. The wonderful thing about the human realm, it has this lovely mixture of joy and woe. And, of course, we have the intelligence to work our way out of it. The... Uh, Advantage of sex, if you remember uh, last time we were talking about conceptions of time and the idea of circular time. So obviously if you believe in circular time, time constantly repeating itself, then once you've got a Buddha who is a male, all the rest of them have to be males. So, so that's, that's what you call a ditty, that's what you call a holding on to a belief, you see. Um, and the Buddha rails about this. If he, if he knew what was being said about him now... I'm sure he'd turn over in his grave if he was still there. 
the whole idea of extending something present into the past to make a lord of it is um, one of those things that we constantly do. See? <clears throat> precedence. We, in, in our law-making, we call it precedence. So that's how you end up with the idea that only men can become Buddhas. Uh, the meeting with the teacher ordination, endowment of inherent capabilities to higher knowledge. So hopefully we've all got that, but there's something perhaps special about somebody who's made that dedication to become fully self-enlightened. And a dedication of one's life and resolute will. Don't forget that. This um, uh, endowment of inherent capabilities to the higher knowledge. So remember, we've all got that, but uh, we talk about <clears throat> the self-enlightened Buddha. So for a Westerner, this, this does conjure up the idea of the self-made man, the self-made woman, you know. And of course, when you look into the history of anybody who is self-made in terms of um, their success in society, you find that they've uh, um, uh, been helped along by their workers, uh, by the system, uh, by their birth, by good fortune, and so on and so forth. So the idea of somebody being self-made is, a, is one of these lovely Western myths. And we deposit that on the Buddha, thinking that he did it all by himself. So, of course, he didn't. He, uh, he started off by going to teachers, tried various methods, as you know, and, uh, and eventually, in that despair, suddenly found a way out of the problem. But we'll come to that perhaps at another time. So what I want to uh, just talk around, really, just uh, allow ourselves to contemplate a little, are these uh, perfections. But I want to do it specifically for a retreat situation. Uh, The first two I'll sort of stick together are dana, generosity, and uh, metta. So, you know, we say that charity begins at home. So where's home, you see? It's here, isn't it? It's, it's how I treat myself. If I can discover and develop a way of treating myself which is uh, virtuous and which does me good, then let's presume that I'm going to treat others in the same way. So we have this, uh, there's a teaching called the Ahara on nutriments. And uh, they go like this. Food for the body, that's pretty straightforward. Sense impression for feeling. Volition for Sankara for mental formations or becoming, karma, and consciousness for the body-mind. That one specifically is to do with the process of rebirth, so we needn't uh, bother ourselves here so much. But it's this concept of nourishing, nourishing ourselves. Hmm? So when we go for food, you see, that's a real opportunity to develop this dana, this generosity, this nourishment towards ourselves. So you have to, as it were, get in contact with the body. And you have to recognize that um, the feelings of hunger partly are coming uh, from the body itself needing nourishment and partly from uh, greed, which also needs nourishment. So we have to be able to uh, recognize that that's there whether we like it or not. And it's a case of approaching the food with that consciousness of the body, with that awareness of the feelings in the body. Hmm? And then uh, reminding ourselves that we can always go for seconds. Uh, We take what we feel we need and we place it in front of us, you see, and again to remind ourselves that this is nourishment for the body. 
uh, that uh, it's just going to cause us uh, the sufferings of greed if we indulge. So we begin to eat. Now, at this point, you see, especially with this teaching around dukkha and suffering and all that, and the dangers of pleasure, we often fall into the um, wrong thinking that pleasurable feelings are somehow um, evil. Uh, they, you know, they, they have to be, you have to be very careful with pleasant feelings. They're, they're mara in disguise, and they're going to drag you down to an eternal hell. In which case, you fall into the error of self-mortification, because now uh, you don't let yourself enjoy anything. Because if you enjoy something, well, surely that's the same as greed. So, uh, this distinction between enjoying what is given to us and indulging it is obviously very subtle, and uh, uh, we fall into the error of one or the other. In the uh, monastic life, which I've come to know a little bit about, the, the, uh, the, the, um, the horror sometimes comes out in people's uh, practice, the horror of any sort of sense pleasure. Uh, monks will ride on buses and trains and keep their eyes constantly on their knees, daring not to look out in case they're distracted by whatever passes by. And there was one lovely example, I remember, of a, a monk whom, if you saw him, you would definitely feel that he was an, an ascetic of tremendous uh, stature. He had that gaunt look about him of somebody who had been through hell and uh, survived. And uh, he was a couple of years older than me in the order, so he would sit to my left, you see, and the food came by, and it happened to be a very uh, uh, lovely meal. It was somebody's birthday, so it was one of these times when we got um, uh, fruit salad with ice cream. So this was, there, uh, this was served to us, and... Um, we began eating it, the, the road monks, and, and uh, I noticed that he was actually staring at this object on the table. And um, I could feel the energy of his stare, you see, because right there in front of him was Mara, you see. And as we ate it and we got close to finishing our dessert, he uh, very mindfully went towards it, picked it up very gently, raised it to his lips, and... <laughs> Disappeared within a couple of seconds. Just in case it touched the tongue. Just in case there arose anywhere some sort of pleasurable feeling. Now you can imagine that this sort of life is uh, pretty dire. If you can't, if you can't enjoy uh, what life gives us. We, we're very familiar with the jhanas and the idea that we can sail into jhanas. And that the Buddha said that this was uh, wonderful. But there is a point in the scriptures where... Uh, the Buddha, coming back from arms round, actually says to Ananda, uh, why don't we find a beautiful shrine where we can eat this, a park? Remember, shrines in those days were really like parks. And he names a couple of shrines. Uh, the Chapala Shrine is the one I remember. And um, the question arises, why should he be bothered about eating his food in a beautiful shrine? And why not on a dung heap or in a desert or in a desert place or just where he is? So there's something about beauty, there's something about uh, the loveliness of life which is not to be uh, confused with indulgence and wrong relationship which causes us problems. Now it seems to me that uh, food is just one of these lovely places where we can develop this right attitude because uh, we have to eat and we ha um, most of us do it 
two, three times a day, and um, probably a, a lot more, a lot more often as well, with the cups of teas and coffees and what have you. So every time we approach something to nourish the body, there's an opportunity to make this distinction between um, uh, enjoying, enjoying what is what is lovely, what is beautiful, and indulging in it. Now it seems to me that if we can crack this problem of enjoying something uh, without indulgence, of experiencing a sensual pleasure in, uh, in a lovely way without indulgence, then we have perhaps a way of translating that into every part of our lives. So there's, of course, all the joys of relationship. How can you enjoy the joys of relationship without becoming attached? There's got to be a way of doing it, surely. How can you enjoy all the aesthetic beauty of life and not depend upon it for personal happiness? See, that's what indulgence does, doesn't it? You depend upon. Your happiness depends upon something being there. Um, And when it comes even to the spiritual joys, you see, one of the the, um, uh, warnings that they always tell you about jhana practice is that you get stuck with it. You, You become indulgent and you can't let it go and it just becomes another path to hell so it seems to me that this uh, this dana this generosity that we can practice towards ourselves this loving kindness this caring towards ourselves if we start just with the basic the basic body what does the body need and how can i give it to the body in a way which is lovely which is beautiful yeah um when it comes to, um, in meditation, you know, keeping the mind calm, keeping the mind still, remember that um, you have to nourish that. We have to nourish that by, by, giving, it, um, by giving it those things to, to absorb into, as it were. So just the softness of the breath. So instead of looking at it as some sort of painful exercise that one has to do, uh, uh, to watch the breath in order to make insight, uh, feel the actual gentle feelings of the breath. Uh, feel that lovely quality of the breath, you know, and just those calm, gentle feelings around it. And just begin to uh, sense that as something which is worthy of appreciation. See, the body does have lovely feelings. Now, uh, going always with, with this idea of giving oneself something is, of course, the opposite, which is to um, renounce. You've got to renounce something. Hmm? And that's where you get these two particular paramis. They come together, the idea of generosity, the idea of giving, and the idea of renunciation. So in ordinary daily life, when we give something to somebody with no hope of return, it means we have to give something up, which we would have normally used for our own personal enjoyment. If you uh, make a donation, shall we say, to, this terrible, um, uh, to these terrible things that happen in nature, you know, uh, and you make a donation to help people, then you have, you've obviously given something up, which you might have had before. You might have gone on holiday somewhere, but you've decided to, to give that up for the benefit of others. So uh, the idea of renunciation and generosity and care always balance each other. They come together. So when we nourish the mind, when we want to nourish our, 
um, a calmness within us, remember that it also means that we have to uh, renounce sense pleasure. Now, it's up to you how far you want to take that. Um, reading can excite the mind. Writing can excite the mind. Uh, phone calls and definitely uh, getting onto the web. So <laughs> all, the, all these things have to be renounced for the benefit of uh, spiritual development. You can even get more refined and, of course, not look around, not look around at uh, nature, which is uh, around us here, and just keep the eyes, as it were, still. So this feels like a sort of sensory deprivation. But the purpose, of course, is to completely calm the mind. And the more we stop that sense impression, you see, the more the mind will calm. It's just a fact. These sense impressions, remember, are what feelings are made out of. So as soon as a sense impression comes in, we immediately perceive it as either being pleasant or unpleasant. And as soon as that happens, you get your reaction, wanting, not wanting. So to keep the mind very calm, you see, and to, to restrict your sense perception at all the doors, hearing or whatever, uh, is, is going to help us to just calm the mind. It's, it's sort of feeding the calmness, nourishing the calmness. And calmness, remember, pasadi, is one of the seven facts of enlightenment. So it's all linked. Hmm? Everything's linked, huh? This lovely word, attention, um, it has this double meaning, doesn't it? To attend to somebody, to look after them, to tend to something. And, uh, you know, by paying attention to the object, by uh, giving it a, a feeling of, um, of care towards what you're looking at, um, giving a flavor of loving kindness to your practice, you know, looking down upon something with compassion. So we have this uh, Buddha, Avalokitesvara, you know, f- from the Mahayana tradition, to look down upon, to look down upon with compassion. So when, you're, when, when uh, you know, these great pains arise in the body, which, remember, are only uh, trying to express themselves, uh, one looks down upon them with great compassion. Uh, as it were, one embraces them, uh, opens up to them, but uh, rather, than, rather than always this sort of very sharp... Um, investigation, which is fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes just to, as it were, flavor the investigation with just that little bit of of kindness. And what that tends to do is it just softens a bit. It just softens the process, that's all. Of course, the danger there is that you try and zap what it is that's hurting you with enormous compassion and try and do a bit of New Age healing. And of course, that can be a disaster, especially if it fails. So it's a case of uh, um, also recognizing that the attention that we pay, the attention can be an attending, an attending to. And if we think of the body with its pains coming either from the physical base, from the posture, say from you know, the knees and things like that, or from the turbulences that are caught up, these mental turbulences that are caught up in the body that come out as neck ache, back ache, stomach ache, the whole load of aches, uh, and to, as it were, look down upon them with that, with that sort of gentleness, you know. So this is a generosity, this is a kindness, isn't it? This is a kindness towards ourselves. 
There's also uh, to nourish that sense of enthusiasm. It doesn't come, I mean, sometimes it, it just arises of itself, but enthusiasm, some vaguer, a sense of urgency. You have to feed it. You have to, uh, sometimes, you know, when, when you find yourself not putting in the practice, it's sometimes because we haven't lifted that enthusiasm, you know. Uh, if you think of people in the in say in the business world or the political world how they how they're constantly telling themselves to you know get on with it uh, these sports people that shout at themselves you know to uh, to make the game you see well i'm not of course suggesting that you do that but uh one has to as it were bring up what were the reasons that we came to meditation for in the first place you, know, you have to keep reminding yourself you know build up you have to cajole yourself sometimes to uh build up that um, dedication. Hmm? So this is all to do with, uh, you know, not um, uh, not being hard upon ourselves, but you know, just to develop this sense of generosity towards ourselves. It's the same with concentration. You see, when when you don't have concentration, then you, you know you can get you can get very down, and you start blaming yourself, and you think, oh dear, this is terrible, and all this sort of stuff, and. Um, it's a case of just resting and just, you know, just asking yourself, well, why isn't it coming, you see? So then if you put too much energy into it, of course, then it, it corrupts it even further. So it has to be a gentle energy, a cajoling, you know? Have some sort of image, like um, training a puppy dog to sit. So if you give it a kick, it just runs away. So you've got to pat it down and, and give it something to suck, and then <laughs> and very slowly it'll, it'll sit down for you. So uh, that sense of being kind to oneself, being generous to oneself. In all, in all the forms of our practice, we can, we can find a little way of bringing that generosity towards it. Uh, of course, there is always going to be the, the danger of indulgence, but uh, you know, sometimes give yourself the benefit of the doubt huh? that you are actually <laughs> being caring and not indulging, you know. Um, I think the trick is to really uh, look at your attitude. You know, why am I doing it? And, and, and sort of be very clear about that. And that brings us really to um, this whole business of honesty. Um, honesty is, uh, I mean, nobody would say, you know, I'm, I'm telling lies or anything. It's not a case of that. It's a case more of exaggeration or not. Not really... Uh, facing up to why you're doing something. So you feel a bit sleepy and, uh, you know, a little power nap, uh, take a bit of time out, all this sort of stuff. You know, I'm being kind to myself. Uh, but actually, when you, when you uh, really quiz yourself and you recognize that you've actually had a very good night's sleep and really there's no reason at all to fall asleep at this present time, then uh, one has to be kind to oneself by not going to sleep, by... by or else one simply uh, begins to develop that idea of little naps all over the place. And uh, if you've ever tried that, it does undermine your uh, meditation. It begins to actually sap your energy. So you have to be slightly careful about that. And that, uh, that truthfulness, uh, you know, even small things like um, what we want to do, don't we, is to build up this, uh, to build up the power of our meditation we want to maintain a constant effort, a constant effort. And uh, I personally like to think in three-hour blocks. I can sort of handle that. If it gets longer than that, I get headaches and stuff. <laughs> so 
So a three-hour block. So if I've been sitting, say, for one hour, and then I get up, you see, well, there's that little idea comes, you know, to have a cup of tea. And off I go. And half an hour goes having this cup of tea, which I never needed anyway. And, of course, it ruins, it ruins that little special effort. It ruins the building up of that energy that we need to, uh, to, um, to really make some good insight. So... Um, when, when, you, when, you, when you get these feelings to have a little drink or take a little break or go for a little walk, so you have to be really truthful. You have to sit there and say, now, come on. You know? And then, you, and then you, you go to the walking place and do your walking meditation. And uh, very slowly, you see, by renouncing those, you see, they're all, they're all nicely interwoven, these things. By renouncing those desires, one is being kind to oneself and one is building up this other parami, this other uh, um, uh, virtue of determination, aditana, you see. Good will, strong will. Uh, one of those things is when you, feel, when you feel restless and you think, oh, well, I'll go for a walk. You know, the mind is not still. And, and off you go. You go into the forest or something, you see. And really, you're just escaping. You're just, we're just wandering off to, to get away from restlessness for a little bit. And, of course, if you do feel restless and we, and we walk fast up and down, it does, it does give us a sense of relief. But it's not, it's not dealing with the mental, the mental factor of restlessness at all. See? And often we can use that to suppress, you see. So you have to be careful. So it's the same with, it's the same with sloth and torpor. Or I prefer the words dullness and lethargy, frankly. But <laughs> dullness and lethargy, you can... Uh, you can make the mistake of thinking, right, well, I'll go for a run and, and really shake this off. And, of course, what you're doing is you're suppressing those feelings which are an energy force which is drawing us down. See, there's, there's energy, remember, which, which bursts us out like, like stars and there's energy which draws us down like black holes. So it's all within us. And if we think that we're going to overcome uh, feelings of sloth, uh, dullness and lethargy by you know, giving ourselves a kick and running about, uh, that's just another way of actually suppressing it and building over it this, this energy, you see. Uh, but actually we're not dealing with this energy which is experienced as a dullness in the mind or a heaviness in the body. So how do we do that, you see? Well, uh, again, you, um, you have to let go of the idea of trying to do something about it. And as it were, be gentle to these things, be generous to these things, be open to these things, and allow them to express themselves. So you have to find a way of allowing dullness and lethargy to express itself. And usually the best way is to walk up and down gently, you see. But you keep your mind, you keep your attention on those feelings. And in that way, these mental states are given the space to, and the time just to exhaust themselves. Often... When we do that, we, we can feel that, um, uh, that transformation. So remember that there's nothing lost in this process. Everything is simply transformed. So we might just suddenly feel, having worked with these feelings of dullness and lethargy, a sudden very gentle energy. Yeah? Sometimes it flips because it's just the other side of the coin of restlessness. So it's a case of uh, being careful to... Uh, really be truthful with ourselves, not to kid ourselves, you know. 
Of course, the opposite is, uh, or the, the danger, of course, is you get into self-criticism, self-judgment, you know, this business of I'm no good, I'm, you know, everybody else can do it but not me, I'm special that way. And it's a case of recognizing that um, uh, you have to make a separation between the action and the person. The person is a figment of the imagination. We can say that this action was unskillful, you know, uh, lying down in the afternoon um, was unskillful. I didn't wake up till 7 o'clock and it broke my sleep pattern. We can say that was unskillful. But if I then say to myself, well, you're, you're an absolutely useless person. You know, this is obvious, you know, what the hell are you doing here? Then I get into this awful negativity about myself, about myself, you see, which is a fiction anyway. So it's a case of uh, recognizing that the act can be unskillful, uh, but the person need not, um, uh, need not be criticized. If those things come up, of course, you can't deny them there. You can't, just like in, in, in feelings of, uh, of heaviness and, and, and uh, these dullness, you can't say, oh, the self's not there, go away, you see. No, you have to pay attention to that and let it go. See, you have to pay attention to it, but you don't indulge it by identifying with it. You recognize it. Now, that's the self. Hmm? And remember that uh, to keep off thought, to come into the body, to stay with the body, because there uh, we're actually experiencing the mind in its rawness as emotion, what we call emotion, feeling, Vedana. Hmm? So every time the mind wanders, remember, it's indulging itself, whether we like it or not. Whether we made a decision to do so or not, there's still an impulsion there. So that's why even though we don't mean to get angry, because we let the mind wander, we get more angry and more angry and more angry. You end up with Prozac. So it's a case of um, recognizing that, coming back, coming to the feeling of feelings of guilt, feelings of shame, and just staying there with them. See? Just allowing them to rise and pass away. Because you'll never... You'll never satisfy self-criticism, you know. I mean, if, um, if, if you hear that voice saying, you, you, you really are the most unselfish of people. I don't know how anybody could love you. And then you say, well, I'll, I'll make up, I'll, I'll, I'll give something to somebody. And I'll practice generosity. And so you do this wonderful gift and give it to somebody, you see. And then the little voice says, yes, that was a very wonderful thing. You did a really wonderful thing but you are still horrible. See, there's no, <laughs> you, can't, you can't get out of that definition of being horrible by doing something about it because it's there as a, as a conditioning. So all we can do is, is allow that statement to come, note it as self-criticism, and go into the feel of it. Go into the feel of it. Now give it time to dissipate. Give it time to dissipate. So... Um, When it comes to uh, coming back to this uh, uh, renunciation, just one or, one or two things that um, you might like to try. The idea of renunciation, of course, is not uh, uh, to create suffering for ourselves, uh, you know, as if we didn't have enough. Uh, the idea of renunciation is to see where the attachment is. So one stops doing something to feel that attachment towards what you... Um, what you would normally indulge in. So, um, you know, just try missing a meal as an experiment. See, and what happens? Yeah. And just stay with the feelings of, of fear, 
You know, the body may disappear if I don't eat, things like that. And just stay with it and, and just feel the fear of it. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to feel the fear of the... Remember that underlying all attachment is this anxiety, this fear. Hmm? One of the um, things is to uh, find out what we feel about time. That can be interesting. Uh, just to find a clock which has a, a finger going round. And just watch it. Watch it for an hour, two hours. And just, just see what happens in your mind when you're... <laughs> it's a, it can be quite something to, to listen to yourself, just watching time passing. Because yeah? all this business about trying to achieve something, trying to do something, and I'm wasting my time, that all comes up in great gollops, you see. So just watching the clock go around, or watching a watch, just, just tick, 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 going round. Um, when it comes to um, this intuitive intelligence, so I'll only say a little bit about that because um, I'll go into that more deeply later. Um, this intelligence we have, the Buddha nature within us, this something in us wants to know. See, where's that, where's that come from? And... Um, um, it's a case of developing that as an intuition, uh, knowing the difference between thought. See, thought is not intuition. Intuition has to use thought to express itself. Intuition doesn't know what it knows until it says it to itself. That's why in your meditation sometimes you might hear these little phrases come up, oh, everything's arising and passing away, or something like that. And that's this intuition talking to itself. Hmm? And it's one of these peculiarities that it doesn't know what it knows until it tells itself. And the only way it can tell itself is through, is through words. Or one way it can tell itself is through words. Intuition is not uh, feeling. Don't confuse uh, what people would normally talk about as I have a feeling or an intuition with uh, feeling. Feelings can also be just as, um, uh, just as delusive as thoughts can be. But again, this intuitive intelligence expresses itself through feeling. So just take a very simple thing. Intuitively, in terms of the intellect, expressing through the intellect, we may understand this idea of interconnection, uh, interdependency. But when it expresses itself through the heart, how does that express itself, you see? Through love, isn't it? Compassion. So compassion, love, sympathetic joy... These are all expressions of interdependency from the heart's point of view. And, uh, of course, it's, uh, it's not the body, but it expresses itself through the body. You've only got to see sports people and see how they uh, react to things and, and uh, uh, you know, to see how the intuitive, how just that intuitive intelligence expressing itself. Same with people who uh, perform, you know, actors and musicians. So the body, heart, mind, the body, the, and all that are avenues in which this intuition uh, expresses itself. So somehow we have to abstract it. We have to find a way of lifting it out of that embeddedment, that confusion with the psychophysical organism. And that really is what our meditation is about. That's why we turn everything into an object. 
That's why we look at it. That's why we look at something. As soon as you look at it, you can't be it. If you got, uh, if you got into a car and said, "Well, this is me," see, they'd take you away. But here we are in this body, and we say, "This is me." So it's the same sort of uh, idea of detachment. You see, that's what the detachment is: lifting this awareness, this intuitive intelligence, this panya, out of its embeddedness to look at what's going on inside us. And. Uh, to do that, the best, uh, I always find anyway, personally, that the best motivation is curiosity. You know, what Zen calls the great doubt, or wanting to know, to excite that interest in, in, our, in our psychology and our bodies, and to, uh, to see, you know, these three characteristics, see how it works. So this is the sort of thing the Bodhisattva was doing, huh? for eons, for, for lifetimes, trying to get it right. Uh, the other thing is, um, the other quality is uh, sila, sila, right conduct. Um, normally speaking, of course, when we talk about sila or right conduct, it's usually referred to as just uh, what we say and what we do. Um, but also, um, you know, for our purposes, we can extend it into the mind because every time we think it's an action, it's an act of karma. It is a, it is a form of um, sila, you might say. Um, and, uh, you know, you can look at uh, just not to harm oneself, you know, through our thinking, uh, not to harm oneself by overeating, not to harm the body, oversleeping, see, all these wonderful um, researches into sleep, and uh, uh, people who sleep five hours, they're better off than people who sleep nine hours. It's better for you. So the less... There's a sort of good period between five and seven hours, which is good for sleep. Anything over that is, is doing harm to the body. Uh, they did these uh, exercises with rats, I don't, these poor animals, in which they half-starved one set and overfed the other. Uh, not surprisingly, the ones who were half-starved lived the longest. <laughs> and the ones who overfed uh, died of overweight. Um, one of the things that often troubles us in our meditation is erotic, romantic desires. You know, it's a very strong pull within us. So be careful of that, you know, because as I say, once the mind trips, you're off. You know, you've created enormously wonderful good films, you know, which if you'd only written them down, you'd have probably made, <laughs> made a fortune by now. So it's a case of as soon as you, you see the mind beginning to indulge, you see, be, be, be very quick. And uh, I can set you a little exercise if you haven't heard of it or done it before, but to look to the disgusting nature of the body. Now, you have to be careful here because you don't want to end up being equally disgusted as you were lusted. So, <laughs> but the idea is that as the figure towards which you feel either erotic or romantic feelings uh, come towards, uh, you either see, their, uh, see the body in its more uh, unpleasant parts and positions and see see the process of aging in that person. And this undermines it. And the idea is that we train the mind to actually turn the image for us. See, it'll do it naturally once you've done it a few times. It'll just do it naturally for you. And as the lust arises and presents this image, it'll change in your, in your mind, just like that. It'll do it, you see. This is only while, uh, for most of you, you're, you're undertaking the uh, brahmacharya, you understand. 
<laughs> I wouldn't want to suggest that there isn't a place for the erotic and the romantic in our lives. Huh? I remember it somewhere in my life. <laughs> somewhere in the past. So, um, and that, of course, is a renunciation. That's part of renunciation, you see, renouncing that sense pleasure. And we have to speak to ourselves properly, you know. We have to, we have to understand why we're doing it, or else you get into a battle with yourself. And if you do things unwillingly, it creates a wrong, uh, a wrong attitude within us. So it's the same with uh, drugs and drink, even at the level of just relying on tea, you know. That's also, you can look at that as, uh, you know, conduct. Yeah? Of course, again, uh, with all this, you have to just be careful of not getting too tight a conscience. Um, one of the great uh, mistakes of the, of the monastic life is uh, presuming that if you keep the rule absolutely perfect, uh, then you, you're bound to move forward. Or worse, if you're practicing very hard and you don't move forward, it means that you're not really keeping the rule properly. And uh, I shall end this little tale, I shall end this little discourse with uh, a tale of, uh, of a particular monk just to show you the, the error of, of our ways. And of course it easily translates into, into lay life where uh, you get the feeling that um, everything you're doing is wrong and that just because you're doing something wrong you can't move forward you're always slipping into old habits, old negative habits. So there was a particular monk I knew who was an excellent meditator, a very fierce, up to o'clock in the morning, all that sort of stuff. And uh, seemingly after some period, not getting anywhere, began to lose confidence. So he presumed that it must be the Vinaya. So he began to study the Vinaya, and he found, to his horror, that all monks weren't keeping the Vinaya at all. On two counts, specifically, the upper robe was far too big. According to the original measurements, it was at least half the size. It was a little cape that you threw over yourself when you went into the village. And the bowl was definitely not the depth of, uh, I think it's called a cubit. So at a particular ceremony, the Katina, which is the time when um, you, you have a feast after the rainy season retreat where um, you know people come to make offerings for the... Um, uh, for the Sangha, he turned up with a very natty little cape uh, tied around his neck and, uh, and then began uh, doing a little arms round. We went on a little arm round with a proper sized um, uh, uh, object, uh, which was actually a biscuit tin. And uh, the, uh, the general feeling was that he'd gone mad. So... <laughs> Now, as far as he was concerned, he was following the Vinaya strictly. Unfortunately, he then began to decide that, in fact, the Buddha never taught Vipassana, he only taught Samatha. And uh, he went to Thailand, and they, he got shifted from one monastery to the next. That's, how they, uh, that's, that's what happens, you just get shifted. <laughs> they just tell you to leave. And he eventually ended up in Australia, where I think he finally disrobed. And it's a, a sort of bit of a sadness, really, because, you know, he was... He was very keen and very devoted to the practice. And then just this wrong thought around, around sila, around conduct, and making that distinction between moral law see, and rules and regulations. So remember that uh, even when two people, well, even by yourself, but especially when two people live in the same place, you have a veneer. 
Huh? You have your own little rules and regulations, like uh, you leave your shoes in a certain place and you don't leave them anywhere else and you, you have to close the door and you don't pull the toilet, you don't um, pull the chain of the toilet at certain times during the night and things like that. So all these little rules and regulations begin to build up whenever uh, two people live together. Huh? And, of course, even when you live on your own, you end up having little rules and regulations which you're not aware of until somebody comes and lives with you. And then you realize that you don't want them to wash the pots like that. You do it like this. <laughs> and it causes enormous anger and, uh, and all sorts of silly stuff. Um, so, uh, again, this business of uh, right conduct. We can, we can look at our actions from the point of view of not doing harm to ourselves. That's the main point. Uh, there are two other things that I want to say was the upeka, equanimity. It is a total receptivity. Upeka, you'll hear it um, used in, in various ways. One of them is neutral feelings. But here, uh, we're really talking about an attitude of complete openness, complete rece- uh, receptivity. It's a bit like a like a judge in a way. Uh, we expect a judge not to get caught up in the arguments of these clever lawyers and not to get caught up in the emotion of the crowd. So, as it were, it's an attitude of being completely open to whatever your heart and mind have to offer you. You know, a real, a real um, openness. You know, hold nothing back, you see. Of course, when, when you find yourself getting tight, then investigate that. What is it? Fear? Aversion? You see? And uh, finally, mudita, joy. I, you know, I, I really do feel that at the end of the day, we ought to rejoice. Huh? I mean, for heaven's sake, we've been sat here for how, don't know how many hours, <laughs> and walking around and restraining ourselves. And at the end of the day, all we can think about is what a horrible day we had. So it's, it's good at the end of the day to reflect on the fact that, you know, we've been training and we've been moving forward. And uh, even though it might feel sometimes a spiritual life as one uh, well-known um, uh, Hindu saint in, uh, in Sri Lanka used to say, the spiritual life sometimes feels it's uh, one step forward, two steps back. Uh, the fact is that every evening I really feel that, you know, it's a good practice to rejoice about one's spiritual life and to feel happiness around it, you know, that we are actually uh, doing what is good for us and good for others. So that quality of mudita, that quality of rejoicing in oneself, and uh, because it's often translated as just sympathetic joy, you know, that you, only, you can only be joyful when somebody else is joyful, you see. But we can be joyful in ourselves. Huh? And uh, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I have found that the more I practice these virtues towards myself, the more it's easier for me to practice towards the others. So that goes back to our meta practice, which always begins uh, classically with offering ourselves, uh, you know, uh, meta before we offer it to others. Uh, we tend to find that uh, difficult because of our negativities towards ourselves. So you know, we have to come round it another way. But even so, we can see that if we can uh, think of these virtues as something we can develop towards ourselves, then I think they become more immediately, uh, uh, immediately important to us. Hmm? So that's what the Buddha was doing for all these uh, countless uh, ages and lifetime after lifetime. Uh, the Bodhisattva in his vow to become fully self-enlightened. 
So I can only hope that my words have been of some use to you and that you will not have to go through so many lifetimes and <laughs> endless cycles and that you will be fully liberated even within this lifetime. Thank you. So now we're going to do uh, the sharing of blessings. From my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces Celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dharma. Solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Just before I go, just two things. Um, I don't know whether the morning chanting was just too much uh, for people, so I've reduced it to a very uh, basic one, and uh, you're very welcome to come, round about quarter past six. I'm also going to put a little notice up, so the qigong is still qigonging in the walking room at five o'clock, and uh, at 8.30... Um, We'll do the refuges and precepts with metta. I think that's the normal thing that was done, yeah? And then I shall give you my tip tip of the day, which should set you right for the whole time. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.